Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative. Piecemeal covers topics related to eating disorders, body image, and how society may influence our thinking. Please use your discretion when listening and speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lampert. In today's episode, we're exploring a topic we haven't covered yet on the show. That is the intersection between eating disorders and diabetes. We're lucky to welcome two guests for this conversation today. We're super excited to have Nairi Katadurian and Dr. Jamie Taylor, who recently completed a research study related to this topic. So let me tell you a little bit about them. Nairi is a, currently a third-year medical student at Oakland University, William Beaumont School of Medicine. Her passion for advocating for mental health, along with nutrition and wellness, stemmed from her personal journey and struggles throughout her adolescent years. She is the published author of The Price of Success, Understanding the Cost of Getting a College Degree, a self-help book for high school students preparing for the mental, emotional, and physical aspects of getting through university. She now uses her social media platforms to advocate for all of these topics. Dr. Jamie Taylor is the Director of Adolescent Medicine at Beaumont Children's and is the Medical Director of the Huff Center for Adolescent Health. She holds the Nancy Rambo Huff Endowed Chair for Adolescent Health. Jamie is dedicated to the health and well-being of adolescents. Her areas of expertise include chronic disease management, specifically related to eating disorders, as well as female reproductive health. Jamie also has a great passion for teaching and is an assistant professor at Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine. We are thrilled to have you both here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. I'm very excited to talk about this. Excellent. Well, let's start with an introduction to the research that we mentioned. So we certainly appreciate researchers like you and researchers in all fields who help us explore and advance and then apply what we know about eating disorders. And we know that your study involves physicians. So tell us about the study and what it examined. Yeah, so when I was thinking about the sort of research that I wanted to conduct, obviously I'm very passionate about eating disorders and disordered eating behavior. And as a medical student, kind of analyzing physicians was just very natural flow. And so my question was, patients with diagnosed with type 1 and 2 diabetes, they're at increased risk for developing clinical disordered eating behavior. And although the research does support this higher incidence, the impact and the impact like on their health outcomes, there are only very few studies that have actually assessed physicians' knowledge, attitudes, and training to identify and treat these conditions. So I wanted to see and assess physicians' level of training, their comfort, and their attitudes towards providing clinical care to patients diagnosed with diabetes, and how comfortable they feel in assessing this in this patient population. That is fascinating and really sort of highlights a, a, something they could literally experience day-to-day practice perspective, right? They will see people, certainly see people with diabetes, see people with disordered eating patterns, and sometimes those people are the same people. So why was it important, though, to focus on physicians and diabetes? Really tell us more about the rationale behind the study. Why is that all important for us to understand more about? Obviously, physicians are the ones who are very active participants in in patients' treatment plan and management, um, and especially endocrinologists, which is the patient, the population that um, filled out my research. And we have things like family med doctors and different types of physicians who interact with patients with diabetes every single day. And healthcare professionals are trained in treating patients diagnosed with diabetes. 
So if they are trained in that, then they may view eating disorders and diabetes as distinct problems on opposite ends, but really they frequently co-occur like you mentioned. So I think it's important to really address that in physicians. The reason we talked about patients with diabetes is because there are multiple components that could increase the risk of eating disorders and disordered eating behavior in this population. The first one is thinking about how closely they need to monitor their food, especially patients with type 1 diabetes who need to take insulin and need to track everything that they're eating to manage their insulin bolus. Closely monitoring your food every single day really increases your risk of engaging in disordered eating behavior. The fact that they're eating choices are really restricted now that they have this diagnosis of having diabetes. The fact that sometimes they might feel like they've lost autonomy of selection of certain types of foods. That's kind of the reason they're at significant risk, but the reason it's important to address that in that population is because when you have poor diabetes management, you have poor metabolic control, and that can lead to significant life-threatening consequences like diabetic ketoacidosis. So in this patient population, having an eating disorder or engaging in disordered eating behavior can really be life-threatening at the end. Absolutely, and I'd, I'd love to hear from, from each of you maybe a bit more of a, I remember having this conversation with the patient in the office to really put sort of that personal face to it a bit. When you're working with a person who has newly new onset diabetes and you're starting to go down the road of talking about what has to happen with their food, what might happen with their body, with their weight, with their insulin, with all of the pieces around measuring it. Can either of you or both of you think of an example of how that feels as a patient, that you worked with a patient or a family around managing a really big thing to learn kind of out of the blue. So I trained at Riley Hospital for Children in Indianapolis and with the adolescent specialists at IU. And one of the things that we did, and one of the reasons that I have such an interest in chronic disease management is we managed patients with type 1 and type 2 diabetes who were 15 and over in the state of Indiana. So it gave us a really unique perspective. And then while there, I also worked with patients who were afflicted with eating disorders. And so there was that overlap a lot of times. And then in my particular patient population, throw in the fact that these are adolescents being diagnosed with a new chronic illness, or they've had a chronic illness for a really long time, but now have to take responsibility for managing that chronic illness, then it throws a whole bunch more into the picture. You know, the conversations are really long and detailed, as you alluded to. We have to talk about not only how to monitor blood sugar, but how to count carbohydrates, how to ensure that you're getting movement and making sure that that movement is joyful, making sure that the cooperation around management is is appropriate. And then also talking about the dangers in a patient population that doesn't always recognize that life goes on far past 18 and that those consequences that they develop or behaviors that they developed as adolescents, they're going to, they're going to follow them into adulthood. And so there's, there's interesting perspective there. I think it can be an overwhelming experience and certainly in a patient population that is so mindful of their bodies, uh, it can add a lot of complexity to that as well. Absolutely. That does seem like 
a lot to take in all at once as we're trying to help people navigate through healthcare, particularly in the adolescent health space where the adolescents are, you know, it's probably not the only thing they're dealing with in their life, but they're also dealing with being an adolescent and all the, the joys and uh, trials and tribulations that brings with it. So let's, let's swing back to the study. So we know that there's this clear overlap. We know that we'd like all physicians to be aware of this overlap and how to speak to these words. I loved some of the words you included in your description of conversation with patients around joyful movement, not just exercise. We want you to move your body in a way that's joyful. We want you to be able to adopt behaviors with food that are sustainable, that are, are not overly restrictive. We want you to be able to think about this as a, as a, a management of your health. I, and there are many ways that perhaps we're not training our healthcare providers to think about uh, aspects around management of these illnesses in that way. But before even that, what did you learn in your study about physicians' knowledge about disordered eating in patients with diabetes? What we did was a 17-question online survey, and it was developed by modifying questionnaires from the Michigan Diabetes Research Center. And so of the people who responded, 97% of the physicians were endocrinologists, and their years of experience ranged from 6 to 35. And 58.8% uh, of them reported not having received any education about identifying or assessing for disordered eating behavior among patients diagnosed with diabetes during or after their professional training, 68% identify that they didn't believe they had the tools or resources available to assist a patient with disordered eating behavior. And they requested a lot of different types of tools in order to help the, these patients, including access to counselors, having access to registered dietitians who are actually trained in disordered eating behavior, access to psychiatry and improved equity to access these resources, they wanted assistance in identifying different cultural, ethnic, and racial presentations or pressures. Um, when it comes to this issue, they wanted improved referral networks and uh, referral resources and improved education, more pamphlets, more screening tools. I mean, everything, everything you could think of was included in, in the resources that they wanted, which just really highlighted the gap that there is because Whenever it comes to physicians interacting with patients, if doctors know that they are able to ask a question and get a yes from that problem and then do something about it, they're more likely to ask the question. But if you don't feel confident in doing something once a patient discloses something to you, you're le less likely to ask the questions. So we want to make sure that they, they do feel confident in, in the fact that if a patient says, yes, I need this resource or yes, I'm going through this, that they will be able to do something about it. I think that's a really important point because I think sometimes we, you know, we hear all kinds of stories about uh, in the eating disorder world about physicians who were not well-informed or who saw a patient for a long time without having any idea that the person had an eating disorder in part because the conversation didn't come up. But we know that, that historically physicians and many other health professionals are not receiving adequate training around eating disorder disordered eating, much less the interface with something like diabetes. So it's, how, you know, how can you blame people for not asking a question that if they get a positive answer, they don't have some resource to do something about it. So that makes a, a lot of sense. I, my brother is a physician and, and, and I have a PhD in nutrition and epidemiology. And when he was in medical school, he called me up and said, 
can you come and do a lecture for my class about eating disorders? And I was like, sure, of course I can. And I was the only eating disorder research resource his entire medical school class had for an hour of me. Probably that's not enough, let's just say. <laughs> so it makes a lot of sense. So the physicians wanted a lot of resource. And as you were uh, thinking about this and thinking about how to, how to provide resource and even how to provide red flags to look for, what are some warning signs that, that physicians can watch out for when working with patients with diabetes? Yeah, I think really being aware of the subtle changes in care and then the really big obvious changes in care. So it's not uncommon for someone with diabetes, especially an adolescent, but anyone to come in and say, oh, I forgot what my treatment plan was, or I didn't bring my, my blood sugar numbers. So that would be a red flag to me. Why are you forgetting your treatment plan? This is something that you should be doing on a day in and day out basis. So why is that something that's slipping your mind? Change in blood sugar management. So hemoglobin A1C is a measurement that we use to look at blood sugars over the average of a three-month period of time. And if that number is consistently elevated or increasing, that tells us that patients' blood sugars are not well-managed. And we need to dig in and find out why that is. Certainly an increased focus on body shape and size should be a red flag. And it's important to ask about changes that are happening in the body and to see if people are feeling those changes. And if they are, how do they understand those changes and how do they understand why those changes are happening? It's okay to talk about body image. It's okay to talk about discomfort in body or changes in body. If we talk about it, then there's a way for us to understand it better. And sometimes it's just the fear of not knowing why is my body changing or why is it changing in this way? I think changes in mood is a really big one too. Anyone with a chronic illness has an increased risk of comorbid conditions that are commonly found in patients with eating disorders. Anxiety, depression certainly are going to be more likely to be found in these patients. And then add that in with disordered eating and it can be catastrophic. So paying attention to that I think the other piece would be excessive movement, right? So I mentioned joyful movement before, really recognizing that movement is important for our body as a whole, and especially when we have a chronic illness, but that we're allowing our body rest and time to recover and also doing things that really make us happy and don't feel punishing to our, to our minds or to our bodies. Those are all really great highlights. Say, say a little bit more, if you would, about the, really about the potential health complications. What happens uh, in somebody with an eating disorder and diabetes if, if one or both are not well-managed? What, what can happen that really fuels this concern from, from the care providers to say, we really need to help you to find the tools to manage this? Because what are those potential health complications in a bit more detail? Yeah, so Nairi touched on probably one of the biggest ones that we would see in someone with type 1 diabetes, which is diabetic ketoacidosis. So another one of those things that providers can look out for is increased hospitalizations because of uncontrolled blood sugars. Um, when we have uncontrolled blood sugars, we can have damage to the nerves in our body, um, mostly the small blood vessels. So uh, we can get nerve damage to this to the small smaller nerves in our extremities um, you can see damage to the eyes right leading to blindness uh, and damage to the kidneys as well when blood sugars are um, are elevated over a long period of time 
Infection rates can be higher in patients who have uncontrolled blood sugars. So disordered eating, um, manipulation of medications, these can all lead to higher infection rates. And these patients we know with this overlap um, have a greater uh, or a higher mortality rate um, because of these consequences of their poor control. And then you add that in a chronic illness with the typical things that we see in patients with eating disorders, bradycardia, um, passing out episodes, temperature intolerance, um, amenorrhea, right? So lack of periods and decrease in bone density and all of those things in conjunction with the chronic illness, just put them at even higher risk than some of our patients with, and I, I don't say this lightly, just the eating disorder, right? Clearly an eating disorder is a significant illness, but add in something like diabetes and it just compounds the problems even more. Absolutely, that makes sense. They're both very significant illnesses and put together, they are much more than each of, of the individual ones. So in your study, thinking about you know, what education and training do physicians have and how well prepared do they feel, you spoke a bit about the, the, the large sort of basket of things that they could use to feel more equipped to properly screen and to intervene. As people, as yourselves in the medical field, how do you think we can help physicians become more comfortable in this area, tangible things that we can do to really improve the comfort level so that we feel more equipped to ask and meet the need if the answer is yes. So, I mean, thinking about myself on an individual level, kind of the goals that I have moving forward would be to do things like educating about this topic, like we are at this moment going on a podcast and hopefully people listening to it and, and learning more about it. Because if, if you've heard about it and if, and if you're thinking about it, if it's in your mind, then you're more likely to ask questions about it. So even something as simple as having people listen to podcasts about it can increase their radar. Some things that we are hopefully working on is creating continuing medical education, which are, are things that physicians and healthcare professionals need to do every year in order to get credits, CME credits. And so if we create a CME module about this, then they can have an option to do some more education training about it. Some things moving forward is is being able to have surveys or screening that physicians can do every time a patient with diabetes comes into their office for a checkup, they can do a little screening questionnaire about this topic. And, um, and if, if the, the screening questionnaire kind of raises some red flags, they can take that as an option to like, okay, I need to discuss this more with this patient because I'm a little bit concerned about them. We need awareness. That's the biggest piece, right? We can have all the resources in the world, all the screening tools in the world, but until there is an understanding of the significance to health from eating disorders, I think it doesn't matter how much we have. And so continuing to work as a group, as a whole, as people who support those with eating disorders, we have to continue to be loud and to use our voices and to help people understand this is a problem. And it doesn't matter if you have diabetes, if you're young, if you're old, if you're rich or you're poor, we need to bring that out because it's lacking. It's really lacking. And you know, there are other groups who have gotten their voices heard and things are moving forward. And I know that we're there. We just have to keep pushing. I agree. There's, it's been interesting over the past two years through the course of the pandemic, right? We've seen more attention to eating disorders in the mainstream media, 
reports coming out about increased ER visits, increased hospitalizations, increased in, in concern about body and, and weight and disordered eating that as, as terrible as all of the impacts of the pandemic are, it's been really interesting to see that eating disorders is a topic that's talked about in, in places that it just hasn't traditionally been talked about nearly as much, which gives me a, a lot of hope. There have been more mentions of eating disorders in Congress, for example, in the last four months than there have in the last 40 years. So I'm hopeful we're making some, some progress. But how do we how do we support how about support for patients who have both diabetes and, and an eating disorder or disordered eating? How do we how do we treat the unique dietary needs that come with diabetes in a way that doesn't really doesn't inadvertently trigger or exacerbate disordered eating and sort of feel emboldened to, to go there to have that conversation with people? Thoughts on how to do that? I think the focus needs to be on health and we don't do a good job of that in the medical community, right? Because we have different definitions of what health is and health to me and my team is a, it's a very different picture than it is for some of our other providers. So it shouldn't be a different message. It should be the same message. It's about balance and variety and feeding your mind and your body and your soul in whatever way that is and really embracing that everything fits. It doesn't matter if you have diabetes. It doesn't matter if you have disordered eating. You can find a way to make all of these things fit and work for you. And so it's really helping providers understand that this isn't about my body. This isn't about my external body. This is about my health. And that is represented by my internal being. And so when I step on the scale at your office, that is not the conversation that we need to be having. You need to be asking me about what am I putting into my body? How am I moving my body to improve my blood sugar control? Because that really is an independent factor in blood sugar management is movement regardless of weight. And so it's about learning how to say to people, that's not the conversation that we need to be having right now. And that takes like a lot of gumption, right? It's really hard, even as a provider, as a physician to go to other physicians and say, that is not the message. You are focusing in the wrong space. But if patients can find that voice, like, holy moly, we could make huge strides in defining what health is and getting everybody on the same page. Yeah, I agree. And to just add on to that, one thing I like to think is that shame never inspires someone to do anything positive. So the focus should never be on shaming the the patient about their weight or their, you know, they haven't been managing their their glucose levels so well this past week or whatever. The focus needs to be on on how can we help them eat a nutrient-dense diet while managing their comorbid conditions? How can we help them have positive attitudes about food intake? even though they have to restrict it in some sort of way or really micromanage what they're eating every second of the day. And how do we not encourage restrictive patterns of eating when we educate them about what is good or bad for their diabetes without labeling food as good or bad? It really all comes down to just including this integrative approach. You can't just have one provider take care of that patient. You you know, endocrinologist is just as important as a registered dietitian, as a diabetes educator, as a therapist. So, so really advocating for your patient to have all those resources and taking care of their condition in a multidisciplinary approach is, is very important. Yeah, it, it strikes me that, that you're saying a lot of the, you know, we're, we're right there with you around, you know, weight is not a behavior, weight is just a measurement. And so if we 
continue to talk to people about changing their weight, that's not a behavior. And, and you outlined, you know, Jamie, you went down the list of, of actual behaviors, right? There are things that we can do to promote our health where there's eating and moving, and I would throw in sleeping, right? There's another great behavior and, and health dimension that we can pay attention to. And of course, coping, that is so important. Do we have the skills to cope? That if we can help to pivot this, what feels many days like a very large shift, if we can pivot it to, instead of thinking about, about weight and health as equivalent, weight's not a behavior. Eating, coping, moving, sleeping, those are behaviors that we can actually focus on. So we can get the conversation off of the weight and what the body is measured on a scale into what the person's actually doing with the resources they have. We're really more likely to get a much better outcome on all the dimensions you're talking about. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the pivot seems big, but if we have lots of people helping to pivot, then the work is lighter. And so it really is about this piece, the education piece, coming on your show and doing this conversation or giving a lecture or for those of us in the eating disorder world, whether it be um, the mental health aspect, the therapeutic side or the dietetic side or the medical side, really working to teach those who are learning from us this terribly important message and then letting them go out and help spread that message. And that pivot will happen much easier. Absolutely. I'm curious, Nari, in your experience with your fellow med students, do you, how do you hear this conversation among fellow students? We hear, hear Jamie's conversations as a provider, and that can be, you know, a little tricky at times. How about as a student with your fellow students? I think that because of my, my passion, my interest in this topic, I've, for years, I've, I've read about it and I've learned about it. So I find that I'm always the advocate about how, like Dr. Taylor talks about, weight is not the end all be all of someone's health. And in a lot of our lectures, we, we learn about how being overweight has negative health consequences. And I think that if you're not really interested about this topic, you're just like, oh yeah, okay, you're right. And like, you move on, you learn about it and you move on. But then like, I find myself always asking questions and like really having some pushback about topics. And that really encourages my, like my classmates to also engage in the conversation and they all know me and my interests. So they're like always ready for Nairi to say something like about what we're learning. Um, so I think that if I, if I wasn't in the class, I don't know if we would even be having that conversation. If you've never gone through it, if you've never interacted with it, you, you don't really get it. So you need to have an advocate in like in every, in every aspect of whatever whatever we're talking about. Absolutely. Well, we're, we're thrilled that you're an advocate. That is an amazing thing. Both of you are, because it is really all about changing the conversation. And if, if we don't do it, who will, right? That's the, it just takes one, one voice to energize others sometimes. What about, where do we go next? If you, have you thought about any additional research, you know, at the end of your study, I imagine you put forth, you know, suggestions for what happens next. What would you, if you could wave your magic research wand, what would you like to see next about additional research or, or sharing of what you've learned? Um, I think like Dr. Taylor said, what we want to do moving forward is really having these conversations in every space that we go into. Um, 
and I, I'm actually going to also be presenting this research at the American Diabetes Association. So that's kind of my next step um, about talking about this topic to like actual physicians who are going to be interacting with patients. So I'm really excited about that. But moving forward, I know that this is something that I'm always going to be talking about. I'm interested in applying to a psychiatry residency. So I'm going to be interacting with patients, you know, going through this every single day. So that's where I want to take it. Hopefully we can do like a continuing medical education program to be able to disseminate the, the information to a lot more people. Yeah. And something that provides ease, right? As physicians, as providers, we need something that's quick, that's easy, and that it, it's expected, right? So every patient in, in primary care gets screened for depression, with a two question screener and it happens at least annually. And so, and we're checking, you know, hemoglobin A1Cs on our diabetic patients every three months. So this needs to be something that just gets added in. It's two questions or three questions that are validated that then we can say, this is a patient that you need to be concerned about. And that's something, you know, an MA can give them the paper. They can fill it out while they're waiting for you. So that's not extra for a physician. And that's really important. Like how quickly can we do this? How can we add it in seamlessly? So we're not making more work for people, but we're helping them do their job better. I agree. I think that incorporating patients' mental health should be a standard of care in diabetes management. That's basically the goal. Absolutely. I know that that many of us in the in the world of eating disorders were a bit disheartened this this past week when the, the U.S. Preventative Task Force came out with this sort of uh, recommendation that there wasn't enough evidence to recommend universal screening for eating disorders. And it sounded a bit like, well, then we shouldn't screen. And of course, those of us in the, the world of, of caring for these folks, you know, said, no, 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 we need to screen. And, and I think it's important to keep talking about how even those uh, very likely well-meaning pieces of information out in the available to the public, I can get misinterpreted to say that this, these are not problems and that we don't really need to be thinking about it. In fact, we just don't have enough data to demonstrate the degree to which these are problems. So I, I think it's one of the beautiful aspects of your study. It is more data to demonstrate that indeed these are issues we need to be really attending to that in absence of evidence doesn't mean an absence of, of doing something that we know needs to get done. Yeah, just look at BMI. Right. That's that's like a whole other conversation, isn't it? Right, we can go on and on and on. But I mean, you know, the, the way in which medicine progresses and the way in which we think about things really changes over time. And yes, the USPSTF is very important in our recommendations for screenings and guidelines, but they're one voice. And right, there are lots of other voices. And as physicians, as clinicians, that is part of our job is to take that information and say, thank you. But what I see in my practice is this, we don't do universal screening for syphilis, but in areas where syphilis rates are significantly elevated, that changes the game completely. And so taking that information, I think is so important. How do we look at that information and what does it mean? And as lay people, not in medicine, it's really hard to know what that information means. And so I think the task force and those like them have a real responsibility in the way in which they present 
their recommendations and what does that mean? Because when other people read that information, they need to have a very clear understanding that it doesn't mean that this isn't important. It doesn't mean that this isn't something we need to focus on. It's just that there's not the data there. I, I often liken that to, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure there's not a published study that says we should use a parachute when we jump out of a plane. But I'm also pretty sure that any of us jumping out of a plane would use a parachute, even in absence of data. True story. Well, anything else you would add on this topic or, or anything else, anything else you would add that you haven't had a chance to say yet that you really think is important to share? I think if there's one thing I would tell people is if, if the conversation ever comes up around you, even if you're not a medical student or a healthcare provider, talk about it and ask questions and advocate for the topic because even people who are not in the medical community need to understand why this is a very important topic because it does not discriminate between you know gender or anything it just everyone can can have an eating disorder engage in disordered eating behavior so it's an important topic that can touch anyone absolutely jamie how about you i just think about all of the people who are listening to this podcast and how how important they are and how their desire to learn more can be contagious and that I'm so excited that they have this resource to be able to take this information to support themselves, their loved ones, and then to take it out in the community and spread this knowledge like wildfire because it's going to take a whole team to make these changes and, you know, that ship will shift. It just needs a lot of energy behind it. Absolutely. So well said. Thank you both so much for taking the time to talk with us today and to share the, your study and your thoughts and your, your hopes and your visions of the future. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah. You're welcome. If you enjoyed today's episode of Piecemeal, please subscribe, rate, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Learn more about us at emilyprogram.com and veritascollaborative.com or search Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative on social media. Piecemeal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Porky. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening.